listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 291. to another podcast at the Outdoor Station, and this one is a belter. Have you noticed recently the flurry of inspiring podcasts we've been creating, speaking to interesting people doing interesting things? The people are getting away from the dull economic crisis, the miserable weather, and the boring headlines. Yes, we speak to people who inspire us to do things, because they're doing things. Take Cycle touring, for example. It's popular, especially during these financially tight times. So, how about this? Have you heard about the solar cyclists? No, neither have I. However, they've just cycled around the world. They left on the 14th of May of last year and arrived back on the 22nd of February of this year and cycled in total 13,583 miles, 163 days and averaging 83.33 miles a day. They consisted of Susie Wielden, Jamie Vining and Ian Henderson and they've been raising money for solar aid. Now, what I suggest you do is look at the blog site to accompany this two-part interview. The website address is thesolarcyclediaries.com. Thesolarcyclediaries.com. It's eloquent, 
it's funny, it's full of useful information, both technical and practical, and when you listen to Susie's voice, you can hear the enthusiasm pouring off the page. This is part two of the interview where Susie continues her story from the Middle East to China and the US before finally returning home, and she reflects on things learned. Now, to accompany the interview, don't forget to look at the blog site, and if you do, be prepared to get hooked. Do you think? Do you think having seen these from the road uh, and passing through the rural um, areas that you have done, so you've seen the simple people as well as the the, the, the more um, established uh, commercial centres? Um, do you think that the countries are getting a fair representation in the international press, the way that uh, the, the, you know the Middle East and is presented? I would say that it's it, it was very difficult. I would say that in terms of the people that we met, and in particular, I'm going to sort of skip a country and, and go through Turkey, which was, was wonderful, but skip into Iran, which is probably the, the biggest example that we have of that, where at that particular time, we were actually advised not to go in by everyone that we spoke to, including sort of friends of friends who worked for the Foreign Office, because it was just after the elections, when, if you recall back to, to the middle of last year, um, there'd been rioting, and the uh, Iranian... Um, president had blamed uh, the UK and France for inciting the riots, and so they weren't actually issuing visas, and they were very, very anti uh, anti the UK at the time. Um, but fortunately for us, we'd arranged our visa well in advance, so we already had it. Um, and uh, when we actually entered the country, it was absolutely incredible the um, the reception that we had from the local people. That I hope it's very difficult to express how incredibly generous and hospitable they were, and the impression that you might have of Iranian people from watching the news is, you know, a lot of people sort of rioting and shouting and burning American flags and, and all of that kind of thing that we would see, in the, in, in, which I'm sure does happen um, in, in a very politicized area. But the actual people that we came across, which I'm sure is by far the majority of people, were the most gentle, kind and caring people you could possibly imagine. It was, it, people would, would look, it was, it, we were disappointed so many people and were so so many people were crestfallen if we didn't spend not just an afternoon with them or have a cup of tea with them, but, you know, spend the summer with them or, you know, or meet their entire family. They were just, just so delighted to have international people coming through their country and they wanted so much to show us what was good about Iran. That uh, it was it was the most obvious example of of where that, that um, the actuality was not at all what we see in the press. It does. It does seem the more people I speak to that have been um, through that sort of area and actually got to know the area on a, on a comfortable basis, rather than just being diving in and diving out as a tourist, they're all saying that the presentation that we're getting from through the media is actually very, very one-sided. Yes, I would say so, and I guess it's just it's more dramatic, and I'm I'm sure that that some of the the things that are represented are very very true, but I do believe that they're much more isolated than we're, than we're given to to believe. What about um, coming on to to that area in particular? But uh, certainly border crossings and visas. Uh, obviously, you you prepared everything as best you could, presumably before you left. Um, you know, how were the border crossings? Because that's usually the time where things disappear, or you know, bribes have to take place, and all this sort of stuff. How did you find that genuinely? We were very, very lucky. I can't, I can't say we ever had 
any issues whatsoever. Sometimes there were massive queues, but even then we were very fortunate in, in being able to sort of circumnavigate quite a lot of them because people would sort of look at us and, and sort of say, oh, you're a bit different and sort of stick us through a different queue or something along those lines. Um, there was one particular funny incident where there was a particularly long queue getting into Uzbekistan and I had uh, I'd just been stung by a bee on my face. And so it, my face had literally, it looked like the elephant woman. It literally swelled up and uh, to, to a gargantuan size. And, uh, and normally, if, we were, if something was going a bit slowly, one of the guys would go, okay, you go, you go and talk to the, the, the official, because they'd sort of go, well, you know, you're the girl, you go and flirt, basically. And so Ian turned to me and said, when you go, you know, give him a wink. And I looked at him with, you know, through the one eye that was still open and went, <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to work this time. And, <laughs> and, so, and so we were very, very fortunate. I think because I have heard that other people have had problems crossing borders, but we we really didn't encounter anything at all. Even going into Iran, the guy was confused as to why we had a, a visa because he knew that English people weren't being given visas. But because we had it, uh, he was extremely kind and, and welcomed us, you know, into his country with open arms. And the only other one that was, was a bit crazy was, was China. And again, I've heard bad stories of people going into China um, on a bicycle, you know, and having everything searched and having, and, having, uh, and having people stop them on the border for a while. But we were very fortunate. And so we got straight through. But as we got to the top of the hill, all of a sudden we saw hundreds of military people running towards us and then crouching on the ground and putting their guns up at, uh, at, at a lorry that had, had just driven alongside. And we just stood there sort of, you know, 20 meters back just watching, thinking, oh, my goodness, We've literally just cycled into an incredible international incident, and this went on for some minutes before um, eventually they managed to get the person in the cab of the lorry out of the cab, and all of a sudden the commander of the troop comes out, gives everyone a round of applause, and tells them all to go off back to have a cup of tea or whatever it was. But it would all been a training exercise, but they obviously hadn't stopped us going through, but allowed us to get within, you know, meters of it. And all of a sudden, just, you know, all these guys with guns started running out. We're just like, okay, just stay still and pretend it's not happening. <laughs> Um, but that was more exciting than a problem. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Don't be careful because this could happen to you. I saw, the, I, <laughs> yeah. I saw the picture of you with the, after the bee sting, and I have to say, it probably wasn't one of your better looks. <laughs> I know. I know. I've had bad days, but I think that one might take the biscuit. <laughs> So, so lead us on then from uh, from the from where are we? Uh, Libya. So we went from Libya into Egypt, um, where we were actually able to see solar power stations. So going back to the solar power, the reason well, we what were you doing when you go into these solar power stations? I don't fully understand that. I can understand the PR aspect, but what were you doing when you actually arrived? We, we were literally, basically, we were given a tour, essentially, of the solar power stations, and then we sort of wrote it all up and, and sent it back to sort of various contacts that we had over here. Um, and in this particular instance, uh, it was a, a concentrating solar power station whereby they use a load of mirrors to um, focus the sunlight onto, it's either a, a tube of gas, uh, sorry, a tube of oil or a tube of water. Uh, and that essentially just boils, creates steams, and drives a steam turbine, and, and that produces um, energy, I, I, you know, sort of in the old fashioned steam turbine sort of way and uh, and so we basically just got a tour of the of the facility and in a couple of different instances when we went to projects really we just sort of got tours of the facility we weren't working there or anything along those lines right okay yeah well, that's a good idea actually never thought of it actually uh, heating water to drive steam i always i keep visualizing the um uh, solar power creating electrical energy and then feeding the the grid from the from from that 
Yeah, I mean, there's the two different types. There's the sort of the photovoltaics, which are, you know, sort of you, you, you'd recognise a bit more because it's on the roof of houses and, you you know, you begin to see them around the UK now. And then there's these, the idea is that they, it is possible to create these massive um, solar stations um, in, in areas where there's a lot of space and there's access to water. So in, in Egypt, it was good because this particular station was next to um, the Nile. Um, and basically, it's just a huge sea of mirrors. Um, and actually, the station that we, we went to hadn't yet opened. And so all of the mirrors were covered in sand, which was a blessing because they were pretty shiny even so. I and, mean, you know, obviously wearing sunglasses, but oh, goodness, I, I think there must be, there's going to be a hazard for the staff of those particular things. You know, it's literally just mirrors as far as the eye can see. Um, and these are basically directing the sunlight onto, onto these tubes and, and creating such an intense heat that it, as, as I say, it creates steam and then drives the turbine. So... So the hope is that they're able to utilize, um, harness the, the sun's rays in these areas, which is just vast. And then uh, that flow of electricity, now they've got um, grid lines which can go such long distances now and underwater as well that you could take that energy a long, long way without losing very much of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a not, an aspect I hadn't really considered. And so we went through Egypt, and then we went, so we went then into the Middle East, so through Jordan and into Syria, and then we nipped into the Lebanon because they had a, a beautiful Roman site called Baalbek, which is the sun city, so we thought we had to. And uh, and then we, we sort of skirted back into Europe through Turkey and uh, and then across into, into Iran, as I was sort of explaining briefly about before. Um, and then we came out into Central Asia, so all those Stan countries. That, um, so we had, went into first Turkmenistan, then Uzbekistan, and then into Kyrgyzstan. Um, Turkmenistan was very interesting because, uh, well, for us at least, because it was another country where we had to have a guide. Because um, it was Libya and, and Turkmenistan where it was compulsory um, for us to have someone with us. And, uh, and in Turkmenistan, we actually had a cycling guide. So it was a wonderful guy who uh, didn't speak much English but was an extremely strong cyclist, so that was great. Um, and then into Uzbekistan, um, which we end up back on the old Silk Route, um, and there's gorgeous cities of Bukhara and Samarkand with most amazing um, ancient uh, architecture there. And then into Kyrgyzstan where it's much, much more rural and up, up sort of dirt tracks. And, uh, and dirt tracks up mountains, basically, was, was that element of the trip. And what they seemed to do there, which I think is probably a very good idea for some forms of transport, but not for us, is that when someone was really, really stony, they would cover it with sand to try to, to level it. Um, so obviously not only stones and hills, but then you're trying to cycle through sand as well. So it was, it was a bit hard going, but it was, it was much more rewarding for us. Um, and then on into China, which is, uh, was a vast country, so it actually took us a good part of two months to cross China. Well, on the trip itself and the places you went through, did you get the feeling that um, they, they, are, they are changing, technology is changing them, or they're better the way they are as regards if they lead a sort of a simple life and, and actually it'd be better not to have technology and com- commerce come in, in a big way? say because I think it's it's easy sort of to say from a, a point of view where you have a lot of, of of technology so you know transport's very easy for us you know you could you could buy a car or you could go on a bus or these kind of things so in some of these rural areas where they don't have those things they have a beautifully simple way of life but actually doing normal day-to-day things is very onerous for the people that are living there so I think it would be difficult for me to sort of say it should be one way or the other um, 
But I know that they are developing. Um, in, in the case of Kyrgyzstan, its proximity to China means that now they haven't got very good roads at all, but they're now being built in from China. They're sort of coming sort of from, from China sort of down to the capital, Bishkek. Um, so I think that they will start to open up more just because they're in areas where, um, sorry, these areas are being um, accessed now by, by other countries, by neighboring countries who want to be able to, to have better trade routes with them. So I think whether we like it or not, or whether the people like it or not, slowly but surely, even these, these very remote areas will start to become more and more open. And, and also, with, based on the remote areas, did you find that you were, you know, as you say, very much the novelty, there, there, there aren't other Europeans in the area at all? Yeah, it was actually quite wonderful in a couple of cases. I think I think there was one case when we were in China, and uh, as I said uh, to you, maybe I'm not sure whether whether within the within this or just before we were chatting, uh, we actually got hit by a snowstorm there. And once the snow had cleared, thankfully cleared, um, the the ground was incredibly muddy, um, so much so that there was obviously a few points where we had to push the bikes through very thick, very high mud. And there was one one time when we were basically washing the the, the bikes down, and a few people had come to the restaurant where we'd sat for a cup of tea while we were cleaning the bikes down and uh, a few people had come and then they'd gone off because they saw that we were staying for a few minutes and got a few more people and then you know a couple of mobile phones came out and a few more people came and by the end of it we had 70 people watching us clean our bikes and and I think it was just you know I think there's perhaps in these areas where very little goes on suddenly if three people arrive looking incredibly um, incredibly exhausted pushing bikes from the middle of nowhere that are covered in mud um, and obviously you know speaking a completely different language and looking quite silly for having having even bothered to try coming through the, the road that was clearly closed to anybody else um, you know, I think it sort of added a bit of excitement to the to the normal day daily life of the people there. So, uh, so yeah, we, we would often get quite large crowds coming to see us. Wow. Well, well, maybe they thought you were you and McGregor's sister. <laughs> they might have done. They might have done. You know, we we didn't have. We, unfortunately, yeah. Sorry, more fortunately, nobody was disappointed that we weren't actually from the TV. I don't think. <laughs> so, um, so did you go from China over to to the States then, or did you go down through Asia a bit more? No, we went from China into the States. We actually, we'd hoped that we wouldn't have to fly, but actually, um, and, and, and take a cargo ship across both of the oceans, both the Pacific from China to, uh, to the States and then, um, and then from the States back home. But actually, it was, it was financial reasons which, which made me, um, sort of lose my, my environmental morals slightly because the cargo ships were, I think, four times more expensive than flying. So we actually ended up, um, unfortunately, in terms of our carbon footprint, flying from Shanghai to San Francisco. Right. And, and well, presumably you've got all the hassles of boxing the, the bikes up and, and so on to do that. We did, but it wasn't too hard. What we did is we went in, in, in the case of uh, Shanghai to San Francisco, we went to a local bike shop in Shanghai, of which there were a few. And in fact, they have some very good bike equipment in, in the eastern part of China. Quite expensive, though. Um, so we didn't buy any. Um, but uh, but we, did, we, did, uh, we did borrow a bike box from, uh, just from a local cycling shop and use that to, to, box, our, to box our bikes in. So that rather than actually sort of carrying a bike bag all the way around the world, you know, only to, to use it once when you, you cross, uh, you know, after several months of travelling, um, we just you just went to a local bike shop and borrowed a box and just boxed it all up that way. Well, I can see from looking at the blog that um, you're obviously a, a lady with a lot of contacts, Susie, because um, certainly the, the implication is as you got to the States, the parties began. <laughs> did. It was a bit 
naughty, really, because you know we were trying to sort of almost you know sort of have a, a difficult challenge and to and to you know sort of be you know promoting our, our cause. But it, we were sort of thwarted, and it was also almost by the the solar people that we met. We met a lot of people who are involved in different solar projects and companies, and we'd we'd meet them. And the American people are so incredibly hospitable, but they'd insist that we'd you know come out for drinks and stay another day and all of this kind of thing. And it was actually quite wonderful for us because we were able to speak the same language, so we really could um, interact with people. It was nice. We've been doing that all the way around, but there's only so much interaction you can have on a sort of miming stroke, the few words that you know level. Um, and so we were just, you know, sort of, particularly in the first, you know, first couple of weeks, just reveling in, you know, well, you can hear me now just rambling on, but, you know, in actually being able to talk to people and find out what was going on in terms of the solar industry in the US, but just more generally just having fun and, and you know, having a few beers and having a laugh. So that was great. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, they're they're yeah, they're well known for their hospitality when it comes to that, aren't they? Yeah, they are, particularly in the southern states. There's that old sort of uh, the southern hospitality. You can't be the southern hospitality, and actually, I think it rings fairly true. Right. Okay. So we're now into the states, um, and uh, sort of social sight scene aside, you, you you carried on. Um, how long did it take you to cross? It actually ended up taking us. We got in on. Um, we came in the day before Thanksgiving, so it would have been the end of November, and we left. Uh, in the middle of February, but it wouldn't have taken us that long. We basically, we, we got across to, we, we came down the eastern seaboard. No, no we didn't. That's complete lie. Sorry. We came down the western seaboard. We came down Highway One, which is a beautiful um, road along the coast in California. And then we were meant to actually go across country slightly further north, where there's a lot more solar um, projects going on. But because in China we got caught in blizzards, and, and as we mentioned before, got the frostbite and all that kind of thing. I think I, I think it was actually me just putting my foot down and refusing to go anywhere that it was cold. And so we headed basically to the Mexican border and skirted it all the way to Miami. Um, but we did take a couple of weeks off in the middle for Christmas because uh, we had a, a friend of mine lives in, in Austin in Texas. So we ended up um, sort of racing to get to her for Christmas and then took a couple of weeks of actually just actually no cycling at all but getting sort of slightly fat on uh, on chocolate and that kind of thing. Well, certainly, um, I mean, you, doing the activity you, you you were doing, you must have been burning best part of 5,500, 6,000 calories a day. And I should imagine in the US you were probably piling it back on again. Did you ever get that six-pack you were looking for? <laughs> <laughs> I was always going for a four pack. Jamie was going for the six pack, and uh, and I think, I think the closest we got to it would have been in the middle of China, where we just crossed the the Western Chinese Desert, which was a long expanse of not well. You had to carry your own food, so we probably didn't eat as much as we should have done purely because we couldn't be bothered to carry it. Um, and then we went up on the to the Tibetan Plateau, so it was a lot of hard cycling uphill. And so at that particular point, I did sort of think, well, I'm getting too skinny now. You know, when you can start seeing your um, your, rib cage. Uh, your hip bones and your yeah, rib cage, yeah. yeah. And uh, unfortunately, America did sort that out for us. Uh, as soon as there was any danger of a six-pack, we hit uh, America where the portions of food are gigantic and there's food, you know, as far as the eye can see and not particularly good for you food at that. So, uh, so yeah, by the time we got to Miami, we were, we were certainly uh, certainly slightly more amply covered than we had been when we arrived. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple, of, a couple of practical questions then that's coming out of all this. Um, first of all, did either of you or any of you get sick or or ill in any way? Any tummy bugs? No. 
Amazingly. Ian was sick in uh, Uzbekistan for one day as a sort of a 24-hour illness. Um, Jamie got, uh, I think, the worst sickness that he had. Well, he had two sort of things. One, one, he had a sort of a, a fever, I think, could have actually even come from the extreme heat when we were, and just over-exertion when we were in um, Egypt. It was so, so hot when we were there. Um, and he also then was equally affected by the very cold in China, where I think he, it sort of, the, the cold sort of lay on his chest and he got sort of wheezing and coughing quite a bit. Um, and then I actually wasn't really ill. I was ill very briefly in um, in Egypt as well. But actually, I, was, I wasn't really sick until until a bad prawn in Louisiana. So I nearly got the whole way around, and then and then a prawn in Louisiana had me. But um, amazingly, um, we got stung and bitten a lot. Well, I did, uh, at least. Um, but in terms of actual sort of... Um, tummy upsets or anything like that we were we were very very lucky okay so so luck being one thing but did you actually take uh, any water filters or sort of hand wipes gel wipes that type of thing just to prevent it yeah, we would only drink, uh, we took um, uh, it's iodine, those little iodine pills. Mm. So we would be treating a lot of our water anywhere that we thought that it wasn't good enough to drink. Um, and uh, we're actually given also these um, these amazing straws that you can get. Um, and I can't remember, my cousin gave me one. Um, where you Basically, you can suck through the straw and it filters it as it as yeah. the water comes yeah. up to you. And we used those a couple of times. So it was much easier to, they really, on a permanent basis, to stick a, a couple of iodine capsules in a, in a bottle of water. And then, um, and then it would, you know, take 20 minutes to fix. And then you've got a nice, well, not necessarily nice, but you've got a bottle of water. And again, going through such hot areas, we didn't really care what the water tastes like as long as there was lots of it. So, yeah. so, so yeah, we were, we were fairly careful, but really not overly so. And in terms of food, you can't really be that careful when you, when you can't carry that much food because you kind of have to eat what there is available and uh, we were quite uh, amazed actually that um, the quality of the food um, particularly in China because a lot of the rural places that we were in um, it seemed that the food was very very fresh and you could almost imagine they'd sort of just gone outside and pecked a few plants and killed a few things and, and you know and, and, that's the, and that's the food so it probably might have been as fresh as it, as it seemed you know while well, we were living in hope but, but yeah it was, it was good the food was good and That's interesting I mean, do you think you possibly that the answer to that might have been that your your system actually slowly got used to the change of foods and the change of diets and so that uh, you, it didn't react in in a big way i think there was probably an element of that as well um I, you know i mean as i say you know the food was good and fresh you know you did sort of glance an eye sometimes into some of the kitchens which didn't necessarily look up to the hygiene standards of kitchens we might see in restaurants over here um and so there probably was also an element of you know our bodies just being you know, by the end of the trip, at least, you know, quite used to to a few more germs than they might have been beforehand. Mm. All right. The second, uh, the second practical question is, if you don't mind me asking, what was the actual sum total of the trip? How much did it cost you? And also, how did you manage with finances going through the different areas? What sort of system did you use? Um, I don't actually know because because we sort of all put bits of money in and all the rest of it. I don't actually know exactly how much it cost in total for each of us because um, I haven't I haven't really been brave enough to look at my bank account. But I'm I'm reckoning it would have been around seven thousand pounds each. Um, and in terms of finances along the way. Uh, in most of the countries, we were able to literally take money from the wall. Apart from really in Iran, they don't have an international banking system. So you can't do that. You can only take money in, so, and, and really the best thing to change is dollars. And then into Central Asia. So that section, Iran into Central Asia, um, you can actually get money out in, in some of the uh, 
the big cities in Central Asia, but it really is one or two banks in the capitals. Um, so it makes more sense, really, particularly if you're on the move all the time, to also have money with you. Again, you wouldn't really necessarily be able to change travellers' checks very easily. Um, but you, but you, had no, you had no issues with, with cards then or the banks sort of uh, questioning where you were? Mm, and... No, well, mine used to sort of, uh, you know, we'd probably call them every single country and go, no, I'm still away. It's the country next to the one I was last in. Uh, well, you know, but, you know, I was quite pleased with the security, I suppose, in, in some ways. Um, but we were quite fortunate in that there was the three of us. So if one person's card for some reason wasn't working, you'd sort of got, you know, a backup of another person's or another person's. So um, it did actually, you know, sometimes come down to two of being declined and keeping your fingers crossed that the third one's going to go through. But you had no um, issues with regards uh, feeling that you were vulnerable at any stage carrying, well, presumably cash through different sections? No. Uh, which I was quite amazed about. Um, I, I think the first time that we carried a lot of cash was going into Iran, and the incredible kindness that we received and generosity of the people there sort of perhaps you know made us too casual. We are lucky, I mean, maybe we were just lucky, but you know we just we just we, you know at some points would even you know with a fairly substantial amount of money on the bikes go in and have our dinner with the bikes sitting outside, and uh, and you know and sort of you know you maybe be able to see them, but it's only sort of half a wheel, and uh, and never had anything stolen or taken any of the trip. We we didn't leave things clearly on display because we had read a lot of things that say although these areas may be fairly safe, don't leave your phone on top of something or your you know don't display that you've got a computer and then leave it so you know all those kind of things. We didn't we didn't have that. Much of that stuff, anyway. But we, you know, we were careful not to kind of flash it around. Okay. Well, due to the nature of your trip, um, being uh, you know promoting the solar uh, solar causes and so on, um, when you went through the uh, countries that obviously have got plenty of raw material, plenty of sunshine there, um, mm. did you find or did you get the feeling that politics or local politics was was slowing the progress of this down? Because obviously, this could answer an awful lot of power uh, questions around the world at the moment. I think I got the feeling that in a lot of countries, so in the North America and the Middle Eastern countries, we didn't really see very much actual solar already in those countries, although I do know that the, I think it's the Prince of Jordan's very involved with the Desertec scheme. Um, but it, it just, it didn't really, and, and certainly not in Central Asia, it just didn't seem to be anything that was even there or thought about particularly, um, which is a shame because obviously a lot of those areas have, have incredibly sun intensive and and would one benefit from from solar power themselves but two could be very helpful for you know for europe for you know providing energy back into europe if, if we did get some long distance grid lines um in china it's sort of more the other way around in that and um, because of the political system there it seemed that if they want if the government decided there was going to be a solar power station somewhere you know Ten minutes later, there'd be one, regardless of, of what was in the way beforehand. Um, so it seemed sort of as if if the Chinese decided to do some something, that they would they would go ahead and do it. Now, whether they necessarily want to do that would be a different thing. But in terms of the government having problems in in in, uh, in sort of following a, an environmental agenda, I don't think that would be a problem there. Um, in the U.S., it was much more so because obviously there was it's a lot more democratic, which which you know. You, in China, it was interesting to see that sometimes, in some instances, although I'm a very pro-democracy, but in some instances, it's almost almost easier to get some things done in terms of the environment without democracy. Because um, in the US, um, it's kind of that thing, like a big solar power station on your own doorstep, you might not necessarily want there. So you would argue against it and speak to your local representatives and, and perhaps ask a governor to, to vote against uh, such a step, which is obviously per, you know, perfectly within someone's remit. But it would take a lot longer then to debate the... Um, 
uh, you know, sort of how, how a solar power station might affect the local environment and the local people in an area and that kind of thing. So that, kind of, that can slow up then the process of actually adopting that kind of new energy and technology. The, um, I've, 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 as we mentioned at the very beginning when I was talking with you, I sort of came across your trip, because you've obviously just recently finished it, um, via a series of links on different websites. But I've, I've actually not really heard anything about it. I presume you've obviously had a fair amount of coverage in the, in the solar industry. Um, but do you, have you been pleased or disappointed with that your trip as, as sort of with the coverage that it's received? For me, it was very important to try and, and promote solar power and the idea of solar power that I would have liked for there to have been more simply because of that particular angle. Um, but at the same time, it's quite hard when you're on the move to, to actually, in particular, there were some areas where it was actually quite difficult to, to find internet access or to, to get in touch with various people. So there was a lot that we, you know, sort of just sort of thinking, could I have done more? Or couldn't I have done more? Um, so there's a lot that I, I probably would do differently now, having hindsight, but also a lot that would, well, would have been quite physically impossible to do anyway. Um, so, I, I, you know, sort of in that sort of, uh, you know, I'm quite pleased and extremely pleased about the coverage that, we, that we've had. Um, and, I, and I just guess that it's something that I'm going to keep trying to promote because I do believe that solar power is a, is a fantastic solution to some of our climate issues. And so, you know, I think it's just sort of this is the first sort of stepping stone. And, uh, and, uh, and, and having gone through that process, you sort of learn what works and what doesn't doesn't work so that sort of helps you sort of for future if you want to keep campaigning about something so yes and no yes and no i guess <laughs> there's plenty of links on your on your website and, and i'm sure people will be looking at it uh, as we speak now and and learning more about the trip and and obviously the uh, um uh, companies and, and ideas and philosophies that are associated with on that um you've returned to work in in the uk i understand on a, on a short contract at the moment but um what was your initial thoughts when you went back into the office after getting off the bike it must have been quite awkward the initial thoughts were much more of this is so exciting and new again because it was although it was an old uh, job i you know i got to see people that i hadn't seen for ages and it was a completely new environment and and from from what we'd just been doing every day of our trip was so incredibly different from every other even cycling through the desert which you think wouldn't be the case but you know so coming into work was just it seemed at that time just like it's another sort of adventure and another sort of you know one day you're doing this and then one day you're doing something else you know it's all seemed sort of part and parcel of that so it's more kind of a couple of weeks ago when I'd been here for two weeks when I suddenly that initial excitement began to wear off and sort of standing on the on the tube although I've now got my, my bike back again because so I'm now cycling to work which is fantastic but at the time I was on the tube just thinking this is miserable and it was cold and horrible and I was going back to do the same old thing sitting at the same old desk um so I think there was sort of there was that acceptance there that you know you you know it's not always as fun and exciting you just have to sort of at some points you have to you know go to work and, and, and try and, well, in my instance, try and make some money to fund the next trip. Yeah, well, that's the next <laughs> you question, You can't get away with just being on perpetual holiday. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, what is the next trip? I don't know yet. Well, I'm, I'm, the, the fingers crossed. One idea is um, is to go and my friend's got a chalet over in the in the Alps, and so I'm hoping that in return for some painting, I, I'm going to get some free board and, and then go and make, uh, write a book up about the last trip, um, which would be which would be wonderful. Um, but after that, I think uh, I don't know. All suggestions more than welcome. <laughs> I quite like to try my hand at climbing. I, I've done a bit of climbing, but but never very much. And so I think that might be a, the next thing to try and uh, try and have a go at.
Well, Susie, it's been it's been a fantastic opportunity to talk to you, and really, really interesting. And your enthusiasm is is endless and boundless. And and it's, uh, it's <laughs> if people I told you I rambled. <laughs> if, if people now can have heard your voice and read your blog, they can hear every word coming out and the enthusiasm that's there. And it's been a fantastic trip, very big trip, and very hard to try and cover in in a sort of an hour's chat like this. But I do have one big question for you at the end, which is uh, which you want to to catch you with, perhaps. Um, of all the things I could have asked you, what should I have asked you? Oh, that's mean. Um, oh, goodness. No, I'm totally thrown. Ah. Oh, I thought one of the questions that you might ask me was, um, how, how have you changed as a result of the trip? Um, or what sort of positive influences has it had on you? Um, to which I had worked out a wonderful answer. Um, well, no, I hadn't. <laughs> um, but, but in answer to, to that, I would, I would certainly say that it's been, I'm a lot calmer now than I was when I left. And I think there's a certain beauty of, of riding on a bike for such a long time is that you can, you can get into this wonderful sort of state of, a zen-like state of calm. And, and I truly, truly miss that now. But I'm trying to sort of keep a, a level of, um, of calmness throughout what I'm doing now because life is so hectic. Um, when you're back in the UK, there's so many different influences and, and factors and, and things you have to worry about and people you need to see and, and all sorts of different personalities that you'll come across every day, um, which is a wonderful kind of broad tapestry of life. But it's, it's nice to sort of be, a, occasion, uh, be able occasionally to take one step back from that and go, okay, this, I'm not going to get overrun by things. I'm just going to figure out what I want to do, what's going to make me happy, but all the other people around me happy and, and not get too flustered and worked up and, and sort of caught in a rut almost. So, so I think being able to sort of step back a little bit and, and have that time out has, has been wonderful and I'm just going to hope that I can keep doing that as I, as I sort of go through life from now on. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been, uh, as I say, wonderful to talk to you. And uh, all I can do is look forward to the book and the film. And, uh, <laughs> the epic. Don't give me ideas. Don't give me ideas. <laughs> and and uh, we'll certainly read your blog in, in great detail because there's a lot of useful in, and uh, interesting travel information on there as well as practical information about solar and so on. So um, so thanks very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much, Bob. Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> make the song. My thanks once again to Susie and congratulations to her, Jamie and Ian on completing the trip. A great story, extremely inspirational and it just makes you want to get out and do something. The weather is certainly looking a bit brighter, things are feeling a little warmer and I think I might even go and get my push bike out. So until next time folks, stay tuned, we've got some more inspirational stuff coming very soon. Bye for now. Different strokes for different folks. The home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for lovers of the great outdoors everywhere. It's all about getting out and having much more fun. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear more from our extensive free library, please visit the website at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. You can now follow The Outdoor Station on Facebook, where we chat about each programme we produce, answer questions and discuss future productions. Why not join us there? This podcast is produced and hosted by theoutdoorstation.co.uk. 